Hi, I am Mohan Surf. I'm a professor of neuroscience and business. I teach at the Kellogg School of Management in Chicago, and I study the brain and try to help companies implement my knowledge of the brain in their businesses. Today, we're going to talk about dreams, about consciousness, about deja vu, AI, how neuroscience can help your business, about death, about brain mapping, science fiction, and about meaning. Welcome back to another delicious episode in this series with my fabulous guest, Professor Moran Surf. He is a neuroscientist. Um, he helps businesses, works with businesses um, in helping them to really just perform so much better. Uh, he works with Hollywood. He, he's, um, he's been uh, featured on the BBC, CNN, uh, Scientific America. This is a bright, bright boy uh, with a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, background that we haven't even gotten a chance to go into because this conversation is so delicious. And I promised you that in this section, we talk about um, neural mapping, uh, how the mind or how the brain rather is mapped, how we see that and uh, and if it's changed. So Moran, when, when, when I sort of first came across this, uh, the idea of neural mapping and how things are stored um, in the mind or in the brain. Um, the original sort of uh, inspiration for that for me was uh, the work of Wilder Penfield. I'm sure you're familiar with yes. Wilder Penfield's work. I, I told you I'd go back. Wilder Penfield, uh, one of my great teachers, um, Bishop Todd talked to me about Wilder Penfield. And for those of you who don't know, Wilder Penfield was an American um, who was based in Montreal, did a lot of amazing work in Montreal. And he was doing work to treat epilepsy, opening up the coconut, putting electrodes in the brain and noticing what happened with the purpose of trying to find the areas that were damaged and what was happening with epilepsy. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that came out about that, about how they map and also stuff around whether the memory, um, wh where memories are and, and where memories are stored, some of that got changed, and, uh, and whether memory is multisensory and what it is that triggers that. So here's what I want to ask you. Um, with now what we know about neuroplasticity, you know, versus left brain, right brain, neuroplasticity means that certain parts of the brain interact in different ways and can change as a lot of Penfield's work become outdated. And if it has, what have we learned? No. So Penfield is still kind of the godfather of, uh, in many ways, my kind of track of research, which really? is you. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so, you know, he, he mapped the brain in the yeah. most precise way by sticking electrodes in people's head stimulating and zapping parts of the brain and seeing what happens. That's kind of the most direct way to study the brain and because the brain has not changed in the last 60 years in that sense that it's still like the FFA mm -hmm. that we spoke about earlier is still where it used to be and the part of the brain that uh, processes smells is still where it used to be and so on. What he discovered is still true. What we have changed since is that we improved the accuracy a lot. We now have tools at the level of the neurons side that we can actually zap and really read the difference between uh, 
small clusters of cells, and we can also zap cells and make them active, which is something that he didn't do much of. He did some, but not a lot. So, so the, the, the kind of the tools that uh, emerged, uh, I, I can tell you that one, they're, they're mechanical, but they actually go after the same ideas. Uh, at Penfield's era, we discovered the existence of the FFA. We discovered that there's a part of the brain that uh, codes faces, but this part of the brain is this big. And this is kind of what we knew. Right now, we can actually zap single neurons in this part of the brain one at a time and see that you have part of this area that uh, gets active when you see a frontal face, when someone looks at you. Another part that, fi that fires when you see the kind of profile looking left, mm -hmm. and another one when you profile looking right, and they're actually organized in the same area next to each other. So we kind of zoomed in to the part of the brain and we know a lot more. But mechanically, we just developed different tools. One amazing addition that came up in the last uh, kind of 20 years is a field called the uh, optogenetics. That, optogenetics. Uh, comes from, yeah, it's basically the use of uh, optics and, and light yeah. and, 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 and genetics to study the brain. It actually comes from uh, a person in Germany who discovers this weird algae that he patented because it could do something that he didn't think has to do with the brain. And another professor at Stanford figured out that this algae could actually be a useful tool for neuroscience. And what he does basically is it's a unique algae that if you shine light on it, it opens its mental pores. It opens the kind of the, the binding ions there. That's like that. But what's remarkable about that is that you can actually take the DNA of this algae and implant it in a virus and then send this virus to the brain and then tailor the virus to a specific location. Bottom line, you can actually make a neuron in the brain, change its properties by kind of having a virus go and attack this particular cell, such that if you shine light from the outside of the brain, the part of the brain opens up and starts being active. And if you make this part of the brain, when it opens up, say, changes color, which is something we know how to do, uh, we can actually basically turn the light on in a room. And when you turn the light on, part of the brain starts working. And once this was discovered about 15 years ago, a little longer, close to 20 years ago, it allowed us to basically put those viruses all over the brain with different lights, turning them on. And then you can take a mouse and you turn the blue light, the mouse falls asleep. You turn it off, it wakes up. You turn the red light, the mouse gets hungry. You turn it off, the mouse gets full. You take, turn the green light, the mouse starts moving left in circles. You, you turn it off, it starts standing still. So you basically can take a brain and puppeteer it with light. And this allowed us to zoom into the brain mostly with animals right now and change them from the outside. So you kind of go in and you do things, but you don't have to keep poking holes like Cranfield did and stimulating cells. You can just turn lights on and it does the same thing. Holy crap. Yeah. So that's um, where that's fascinating is you brought up a whole bunch there. So you've got cross-species DNA transfer, mm -hmm. some serious moral issues with that. Yeah. Then puppeteering, some definite moral ethical issues with that. Um, and this is, you know, and I want to sort of just go there with you for a minute. Uh, you know, you're a scientist, you're a researcher, and like me, you're, you know, I want to know more, I want to understand it better. Do you ever come across that, 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 do you know where that, that ethical moral line is for you? Because I, I, I think I know where it is for me. 
um i think uh i'm because again it will de- in the moment i think we find out but i know where it is for me but I, I think that even if i know where it is for me it's it's crazy for me to assume that someone else will have the same moral dilemma or or, or lack thereof and so if I'm in your position and I find out how to do this and I've got this science that I can put forward, I don't know what you're going to do with it, whether you are CIA, Mossad, or whatever the hell you might be. You know, Facebook. <laughs> Facebook, exactly. Facebook. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's now it's the, the problem is the devil is in our eyes and we, and we don't see him. So I think it's a great question. I mean, I think in every session, we have kind of the one thing that I think I want the audience to take. This would be the the ethics question, I think is what I want the audience to take from this uh, third uh, session of our mm-hmm. uh, time together. It's a tough one. I'll give you in a second my personal view, but what I say when I give talks is that it doesn't really matter what my personal view is. My job as a scientist is to communicate the science to everyone. So their personal view is going to be formed correctly and they can vote on it. So I think that the key thing is that on that domain, I'm like everyone else. I'm a citizen. I have a view. I, I, I know a lot more about it because I do it. And I'm actually involved with taking the kind of envelope and pushing it. But whether it should be done, whether we should use it, whether it should be in the hands of everyone or not, not in the hands of everyone and so on. Here, my view is just one person's view. And I want my view to not be the one that determines the answer, but to no. be an opinion. And I think that uh, and, and in some domains, my view goes against what I do. So I, I work right now on neural implants, on, on trying to basically get and help people in Silicon Valley, essentially, get devices into the brain. Right now, with what I know, I would, if I were the regulator, I would stop it. And this is kind of a conundrum. I would, I would allow neuroscientists to study that in order to understand the brain, but I would create a lot of regulations that prevent companies from basically taking it to the commercial realm and putting neural implants in people's brains. And I would really kind of make sure that the scientists could not talk to Silicon Valley on that and there would be no shared uh, uh, data and so on, because I think that despite the fact that I think Silicon Valley did a lot to help us in terms of funding and in terms of like getting the word out and and convincing the public that there's a lot of good things about it, I think their motives are not pure and I don't know that it's going to be used properly. I, I really think that uh, this dilemma is uh, beyond the the kind of one person answer and even beyond one country. I think it should be like a multi-country conversation because I definitely see a very rapid pace by which we're developing neural implants uh, that could give some people better decision-making strategies. They could decide better. They could make people healthier because they would stop you from having the cheesecake when you're not hungry. Uh, and, and would make you healthy. They would make you sleep better. So they can actually make people live better life. But if not everyone gets that, it means that only some people would get better life and the others would not. And it would lead to the biggest inequality that we've ever seen in the world. It's not going to be inequality in money, which is already what we have right now. It will be inequality in IQ. You will have some people that are smarter than the others. And those guys will only get smarter because being smarter means you can actually develop more things. So there would be a forking of the human species. There are going to be different humans out there that just doesn't want to, uh, don't want to interact with us. They don't want to mate with us. They don't want to talk to us. Like the way we treat apes, right? The smartest ape out there. We don't say, oh my God, I really want to uh, talk to Lucy and see what she has to say about, about my kind of 
you know, argument with my mom today. Like Lucy is a monkey, mm-hmm. and we say, okay, Lucy is Lucy. Humans are humans. We separate. This this feeling that this is how they are going to treat us. So, on the ethical thing, in one sign, in one kind of uh, summary sentence, I would say I think it's the biggest problem right now, and it's not talked about at all. There were election in the U.S. Uh, in the last couple of weeks. I don't think that in any of the debates, someone asked either Joe Biden or Donald Trump, what's their view on AI or on neural implants or genetic modification or on CRISPR, any of those things didn't come up. Everyone focused on like, uh, you know, uh, things that uh, are important, but very immediate. And the things that will end up killing us might be the things that I talked about right now. Yeah, it's, I mean, right there, Again, we got another two-hour conversation just on that section because um, I did a did a show on uh, evolutionary psychology and how our brain has developed in the context of psychology. But now we're at a point due to technology and what you're talking about, even at that, you know, we've done shows um, on economics. Uh, I had a show on with um, uh, David... Uh, um, Corton from the Club of Rome and um, John Perkins, who was uh, was a great show with him. He was an economic hitman for the CIA. And we talked about the division in wealth and, and the, the global economies and how those work and, and that the GDP is a measure of an economy of death, right? It just doesn't take care of poor people at all. But you're talking about a, a different division now, which is a fascinating one which is the division of humanity, because there's a division of wealth. And obviously, people with less money or or less food have a less opportunity. There's no doubt about that. But now we might actually be bifurcating the, the human being, meaning we might, we might even not look the same, we could be physically augmented to look differently but we will neurologically be augmented to be differently and quote unquote in the matrix you know the plug in the you know if you've got your brain set up that way you're plugged in and away you go and you've got a download of a phd in 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 uh astrophysics or whatever it might be versus the other guy who's poor financially can't get any money to be upgraded in his neurons so he's always going to be in that lower class and it becomes a, now instead of a wealth class, it becomes an, an intellectual class, but the intellectual class is dependent on technology. And because they're in a higher intellectual class, their wealth goes up because they can create more and the poor get poorer. And now we've created a, uh, the bifurcation of human beings into the worker drones versus the, we're so much better because we can think differently than you. I agree. I mean, that, that exactly is the point. So, I mean, you can akin it to, to the uh, high frequency trading in a, in a stock exchange. At some point, some companies discovered that if they have supercomputers, they can actually do high frequency trading and they can trade faster such that when the prices start going down, they immediately exit. And when they go immediately, they buy. And just the superpower of computers allow them to just print money because it's not that they're smarter. They just look at things. And when it starts, they just are faster because they sit right next to the stock exchange in New York and they have supercomputers. So people do trades fairly. And these guys do it unfairly because they just have technological advantage. And in that sense, I think that the technological advantage in the brain will make those people, the new species, let's call them human version 2.0, uh, 
communicate differently, right? We use a very, very inefficient way to communicate. We speak, I think something, I turn it into changes of uh, kind of my vocal code and movement of my mouth, it transfers in the air. There's a limitation there as well. We can't speak underwater, we can't speak in high altitude. Uh, same way, it's like it requires more compression from our lungs. Then you have to hear it with your ears, turn it into, like it's a lot slower. Like they could just think a thought and copy it to the other person's brain. This makes everything more efficient. Of course, like you said, they're gonna be uh, smarter, make decisions better. But here I'm gonna give you the kicker. They might not die, right? We're now playing with, uh, uh, in neuroscience, with the notion of death. And can we slow it down or stop it or even keep your brain active after you physically die and just kind of mm -hmm. maintain your brain? If we take it to the extreme, these guys just wouldn't die. They'd just be here forever. So we would keep dying and kind of replaced and they would be here all the time. Mm -hmm. Totally different kind of world than we wanna, uh, uh, than we know of right now. And at least no one has thought about it. And no one, even at the high level of government is thinking about it. So what happens is that we're working towards that scientifically and no one, thinks about it so when it is out there it's going to be too late you know it, that for me is a fascinating again we're still on this this ethics piece because mm -hmm. i i you know the the impact of things we don't we're not very good at that we're not very good at recognizing the impact and even if we you know we solve problems that i always say you know, part of my thing is that people, when I'm brought into a company or an organization and they ask me to fix a problem, I go that, I guarantee you that's not the problem. Mm -hmm. I am not. I don't even know what you're going to ask me, but I don't know what it is. I just know it's not the problem. And they go, why? I say, you, because you're looking at a symptom and you think it's a problem. The problem is five levels deeper than you're looking at it. And it's the same thing with the future projection of technologies. We're looking at the immediate benefit but we don't look at the the impact of that over time, which may mean there is a species of humans that are, quote, immortal, whether that is biologically or whether that is a uh, transference, transference of consciousness into an android. Uh, uh, there's a company in Vancouver. Um, I met the, the brilliant scientist in the work she's doing and that she's trying to do parallel consciousness. So taking her consciousness and transferring it over into the, um, the, the virtual self, uh, which is actually has a, a, a silicone version of her um, and transferring it. So in that advancement of that, we might have those immortals who are running that, that consciousness. And then the worker people who can't afford to live beyond that, who don't get the downloads, who probably get the poorer food, who, you know, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a pretty dystopian sci-fi reality. Here's what I'm gonna should, say. Maybe you and I should write that movie. <laughs> They're kind of, the quick thought that come to mind because we really can, can dive hours just to that. Uh, on the one hand, we started with the bad kind of outcomes. And I think that the audience hopefully hears those and, and kind of rest those. It comes with good things as well. Yes. And I think that that's my, my fear is that people will see only the good things. So I think that it comes with curing cancer, right? If you have smarter brains, they might find a cure for cancer. Yes. It comes with a solving climate change. Right now, we don't know how to do it. Like, and, and if you have smarter brains, they could. So it comes with good things. And I think the way it will work 
is similar to the way many things happen. There's going to be a lot of like uh, candies that will uh, kind of make us want Entice it. us, yeah. And we won't notice that there are bad things. It will, we will see how it will stop some diseases from happening, how it will cure Alzheimer, how we, we might kind of be able to uh, provide equality of money for everyone else. And we wouldn't see that we're buying a bad thing. So that, that's, I think, what people need to remember are the bad things when the good things are flashed in front of them, the carrots, because the, the, the carrot will make, will mask some of the bad things and people will forget. So that, that's, I think, my first point I want to say. The second one, I think generally, when we talk about the future, we have a difficulty in that. And you, you said that, I said, we're kind of stopping. I think that uh, I heard this Israeli story and I really like say it once, that most time when you think about the future, we basically imagine it's the same life we have right now, just in the backdrop of a future. When Star Trek happens, it's not really, Star Trek is like totally, you know, they speak without words and they, like, they still speak the same way we do. They still have the same problems. They still fight and argue and so on. It's just basically, it's a middle-class Americans just in space. That's basically mm -hmm. what Star Trek is. And yeah. I think that that, that is, uh, you know, and, and it, even though in the, in the year 2100, they still are jealous of each other and this guy betrays the other. It's kind of very much, so we can't really even comprehend the future well enough to spend time thinking about it. And in that sense, and you, I, I'm going to end with what you just said about movies, Hollywood is a kind of catering to the audience of now. So they present a future to us that is not really that far and they are not doing good service in really teaching us how the world could be. There's a saying in science that I like that says that the difference between science fiction and science is timing. And in that sense, I think that whatever we see in science fiction movies means someone's already working on it. Yes. What would be amazing is if they thought about something that really is far, far, that we can't even imagine. And that would be hard to sell at a Netflix TV show, but would be more accurate to how the future would look like. Well, there was a, what was that show called? Uh, something Carbon, Altered Carbon. Did you see that show? No, I'm going to write down. Oh yeah, you'll like that. So that's a, it's a Netflix show and Altered Carbon is the transference of consciousness into a different body i.e. altered carbon right so uh, and it's uh, you know it's each season is the the lead character is actually a fit, different physical body with the same consciousness carried through i have right? an idea so, for a, a website a dating website for people in this show it's called carbon dating carbon dating <laughs> yes so you know so so uh, and you know talking about it uh, so we'll just we'll just we'll deviate for a moment you know, in that context, you know, when I talk about patterns before, what got me on that was when I was a kid, I mean, I'm talking 10, 11, 12, I was, the thing I was incredibly fascinated was, with was how many people I knew who were highly intelligent, certainly by my understanding of it as a 12 year old child, so like my aunt and my uncle and my mom and, and people like this, I was like, why did they date the same person with a different face? <laughs> that was my exact question as a kid, altered carbon, right? So it was altered carbon, <laughs> but the same, they were doing the same shit. And my mom and my aunt couldn't recognize you're dating another guy who's going to hit you. You're dating another guy who's going to screw around on you. You're dating another guy who's using you. No, no, this one's wonderful. His face is different, also? but the consciousness is the same. <laughs> I was asking if you found an answer also as a 12-year-old. Why well, they do it? Yeah, so there you go. So that was the, that, you know, so again, that's that 
And that's the interesting thing about pattern recognition in human beings. In the pattern recognition is, is uh, driven by familiarity. A familiarity coming from the Latin familius, meaning family. So that which is most familiar to us is that which is originally programmed in the family. So that desire to find the familiar is so strong that it often pulls us down roads we do not want to go down consciously, rationally, logically, but it's part of our emotional equation, two plus two equals a giraffe, or in this case, two plus two equals love. And what is two plus two? Well, it might be um, aggression, uh, violence, um, with, with, with a, just a touch of softness. Oh, I'm in love with that guy. You know, no, this is your pattern recognition because that was your mom or that was your dad or whatever it is. So it's, it's a, it's a amazing because again, you know, now we're still back in the ethics realm because even for me seeing that stuff. So I'll give you an example. Um, I was, I was consulting a, a therapist, consultant, coach person who said to me, what do I do with this situation? They were explaining the situation. And I said, you need, you know, they employ you to tell the truth, but here's where you need to shut up. And they went, why? I go, because they can't hear you. It doesn't matter. They can't hear you. And so the dilemma was this. This person that they're working with is a very successful individual and they've helped them to become even more successful and deeply connected and they do great work with them. But this person is in a marriage that is incredibly destructive to, to their client's self-esteem, self-worth, and in all kinds of other ways, even in the way that the other, the partner parents. And, and I said, but your client has complained to you lots, right? And he, and he says, yeah. And he's, and, he, and he's asking me for guidance. And I said, shut up. And he said, why? I said, because your client will always choose their partner over you. Even if their partner is Rasputin, they will choose their partner over you. And they said, why? And I said, it's called the law of familiarity. At the end of the day, they hang up on you on a phone. At the end of the day, they crawl into a bed or crawl into a life with their partner. And they have to come to that on their own. So all you can ever do is reiterate what they said, but without any opinion. That desire for the familiar. So it's interesting to me, this is the dichotomy for me, is we're pulled into this magnificent future, which people like Professor Moran Surf is developing and, and all that. And that desire, that pull towards the future, and at the same time, the anchoring into stupid past. That's what I call it, stupid past. Meaning doing shit that doesn't work, that we know doesn't work, that we've proved to ourselves 10,000 times doesn't work, is so deeply embedded. Is there any neuroscience around those two compelling an almost di diametrically opposed pieces in what you found? I mean, I think that kind of to connect the first session and now this one, that's, it worked for a hundred thousand years. This stupid past predicting the future, 
worked when we lived in a savannah when there were only like one tree of bananas and their tribe was 20 people. It worked. Like it was very sure. easy to predict everyone. So our brain evolved for that. The world we live in right now is a blink of an eye in history. It's only yeah. what, like 10, 15 years where we suddenly can talk to any person in the world. Look at the pandemic of 2019, 2020 compared to the 1918 ones. Like it's not a different story because we now can handle it with Zoom and the and recording remotely. You're in a different part of the world and it's like we are in my living room right now. In that sense, I think because everything that we have right now is so new, our brain still thinks it's in the savannah. That's why when you see a uh, you know a pile of bears in front of you, you you don't think oh wait I should have only three because I'm gonna uh, gain weight and I don't need twenty. You still think like you thought hundred thousand years ago. If I want to eat everything right now, tomorrow there won't be any because the monkeys around will take them. So I need to really make sure I, I take it. So in that sense, I think that's not surprising that our brain fails all the time. It's not adapted yet for this world. We're doing a much better work, kind of job in adapting faster, but we're still caged in a savannah, savannah body uh, with a world that is no longer the same. So, so it's interesting. I mean, then we are, again, there's that part, right? We've got this savannah brain, and then we've got this prefrontal cortex that's moving towards the future. And they seem to be in constant battle. But technologically, the prefrontal cortex is winning. Yes. And at a very sort of living level, we're almost mammalian or reptilian even. Yeah, I think what I find myself all the time, and I think everyone should we're much closer to the apes than we are to the things that we think are kind of akin to us, computers and so on. Like we, we the, the monkey that, that sits next to you and kind of gives you peanuts for uh, something is much more like us than we, you know, we, we compare ourselves to the internet and to sophisticated quantum computers. We're not like them. They're better than us. They can, they can, they are not irrational they make decisions clean uh, way and we still kind of think oh we're the superior entity out there we're only kind of by a fraction better than the things that we think are we're much better at. like we, we're very similar to a lot of animals out there and we think of ourselves as like the crown of creation yeah so we, you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of ego there isn't there i mean there's a lot of yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's kind of it makes sense why we're uh, thinking of something superior because we have all the powers of the technology, but it also, um, if not handled well, will give, bring out demise. I think I think there's a difference between us and dinosaurs. The dinosaurs died from climate change, basically, right? A meteor mm -hmm. came and like uh, ruined the climate around them. Like there were suddenly dust storms and heat temperature and earthquakes, and yeah. and they died from being on Earth. It wasn't a virus that killed them. It was something that happened. Uh, external meteor and yeah. boom, uh, change. We are able to see the meteor coming. That's the only difference. They 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 just didn't know what this thing. We we can create models of meteors and do things with that. But so far, we're not really doing anything different. The meteor is coming in the form of, say, climate change or AI or CRISPR or so on. Or things, and we don't do anything. We just sit there and say, okay, when it gets really close, then I'll start worrying about it, uh, kind of. And that's, that's, that's a shame. Yeah. It, so 
do you like where do you go with that because it's we we like i said we're compelled towards this wonderful advancement in sciences and at the same time we're just dumb as shit we don't pay attention you know the <laughs> climate change it's not real okay uh you know uh, we we have a pandemic um preparation yeah but that's not going to happen don't worry about it um could g5 affect the body well let's not worry about that let's just get g5 a 5g rather um you know i mean we we don't really think things through do we so I, I have one project that I started, it started really weeks ago, so I'm still not even able to say anything clever about that. But it's a project that's sponsored by one of the biggest organizations that funds research called the Carnegie Corporation. Yep. Uh, and, and it's uh, involving uh, the government, the US government, a number of entities, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize winning organism, organization uh, in Geneva that worked on uh, anti-nuclear weapon uh, mm -hmm. proliferation. Uh, the nuclear initiative, a lot of entities, and it's all about a kind of what we call high risk, low probability thinking, which is there are things in the world that if they happen, they're going to destroy us. And they're mm -hmm. very unlikely to happen. Like, and so they're so unlikely that we can't really think about them. The example that, that brings some of the entities to the table is the nuclear weapons. It happened only once in the context of a world war. So people don't really think about it. They don't really spend that life thinking, oh my God, like, is anyone check the arsenal again to see that it's not going to explode in our face tomorrow or what if a president right now in the us it's only one man who can decide basically to launch and what if he's getting older and erratic and, and maybe we'll do it just in spite like like it could happen and people don't really think like, until it happens and then it happens and it's like the, the signs were out there and so on so this grant basically says forget for a second like the political aspect of that let's just see why is the brain so incompetent in thinking about things that are very unlikely to happen, and can we make it better? Mm. And it's it's true for, you know, in the US, every couple of uh, weeks when I used to fly all the time, I would pass through TSA, to the Terminal Security uh, yep. kind of administration. There's a person there, and this person looks at kind of an uh, X-ray of my suitcase, and they have to do something about it. Uh, they're supposed to stop bombs. Now, most, there are hundreds of thousands probably of, of locations that uh, have like those X-ray machines. Yep. And there are probably thousands of people who look at them every day. Most of them will never see a bomb in their life, right? If there's going to be a terror attack, it's going to be once in one airport for one person, that's going to be a person. So how can you train a brain who basically all the time just sees water bottles that someone forgot there to get ready for the one in million event? It's really hard. So you, mm -hmm. you worry that at the end of the day, when the bomb actually comes, the TSA person would just not see it because they're kind of all they do is for hours see kind of suitcases with nothing in them. So how can you train their brain? So you can think about nuclear weapon, or you can think of this person whose job is to see if there's a movement in satellite imagery that maybe indicates a war coming. And for years, they just look at the same image and nothing happens. And one day it will happen. How can they prepare for that? That's the project. And I think that to me, is the next endeavor for neuroscientists find a way to fix the brain rather than just explain it. Yeah, I mean, for me, when I look at things like TSA, I'm like, okay, that can be handled by a computer. That can be handled by AI. Like, I, that can be handled by AI now. I don't, I don't think we have any need for any advancement in science. Like, let's get everybody out of that job because, I mean, we all know 
it's very difficult to pay attention when you're looking at the same thing over and over. I mean, these people really are um, in many ways conveyor belt workers. I mean, they're, they're working on a factory conveyor belt. The yep. only difference is they're doing it with their eyes. Uh, uh, the bank goes through. And so there's a lot of shit they just don't notice. I mean, there was a lot of evidence to show that 80% of what was smuggled through, they never even noticed because they don't notice. And it's not their fault. It's the way that the brain works. It's like, oh. They're carrying an old-fashioned brain in a new world. I, I think I agree with you. That, that's surprising you said it because one, my angle on this project for nuclear is that it's controversial and we just started. So I have to convince my colleagues and, and prove that it actually is true is that maybe we need to also outsource the thinking about things like climate change and nuclear warfare to machines. Because even in those things, our brain might not be good enough to make decisions at the moment. And I think that's that's very controversial, right? Like, to the idea that like a machine is in charge of the nuclear arsenal of the US scares everyone. And there have been movies about that. But yeah, it might course. be the case that we need to do that because humans turned out are also not good at that. It's fascinating. Well, this is the end of this particular episode in this fabulous series with Moran Surf. Uh, we've been talking on this one about the ethics, the morality of technology and where we're going, what it means, um, how we've mapped the brain and, and where we're actually going. And really, that a lot of the time we are kind of uh, in our old ape brain uh, while creating these massive technologies that we think of as science, science fiction, but we're kind of in many ways giving the most advanced computers in the world to the gorilla in the zoo. And <laughs> you might want to think about that when you think about the morals and ethics of where you want to go in your life. We're going to come back in a moment with our next part of Curiosity Bites and our delicious episode with Professor Moren Surf.